You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, everybody. This is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Sean Cherry. Patrick Antonetti uh, out this week. Uh, we at Sports Media Podcast are thinking about he and his family. Our guests this week, two guests, um, two excellent guests. Ian Dark is up first. Uh, does not really need an introduction. If you are a soccer fan, one of the uh, premier voices calling world football, calling global soccer. It's called uh, an immense amount of big games in the United States as ESPN's lead broadcaster for more than a decade on that sport. This month, he will be in London calling uh, the Euros, and he is on site there with Stuart Robson at Wembley Stadium as well as uh, the IMG Studios where they'll call some games there. And Ian kind enough to sort of just talk about the tournament, his preparation, um, you know, what it's going to be like for him in terms of protocol, how, uh, how you try to figure out some of the world's uh, difficult names when it comes to athletes, at least for an American audience. We're not used to always hearing them. And then we get a little bit into uh, Floyd Mayweather and Logan Paul. Uh, again, I think uh, if you know Ian's work, you know that he's called some major boxing matches over the years, and uh, and he thought this was a very cynical exhibition, which it certainly was, but definitely a money-making one as well. So we appreciate his thoughts on that. He's followed by Anthony Krupe who is a sports media reporter for Sportico. And we get into the NBA viewership, which was excellent in the first round. They will struggle a little bit in the second round, but uh, first round viewership, probably uh, the best viewership story the NBA has had now in a couple of years. Very, very good numbers for them, especially the uh, Clippers-Mavericks game seven. We also talk about the NHL and their numbers, which were not as good. They had a struggling first round, and it'll be interesting to see if they can rebound as the viewership heads further. And so uh, Krupe is, as I've said many times, one of the best at this stuff. He's, uh, he's very, very good at analyzing the metrics of this because he worked at AdAge for a long time and has the best sources when it comes to media buyers. So Ian Dark is first, followed by Anthony Krupe, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, as I said at the top, uh, Ian Dark, if you're a soccer fan, honestly does not really need an introduction. I'm happy to give him one anyway. He's one of the most iconic game callers uh, in that sports history. Uh, you've heard him on ESPN now for a number of years, calling World Cups, calling significant uh, U.S. games. If you're a world or global soccer fan, you have heard him calling the Premier League. You've heard him calling massive boxing matches. He's been on this... Uh, uh, podcast before. I, with all the accolades that he has had in his career, to me, the fact that he is able to get Taylor Twelman to shut up occasionally, I think is the greatest thing of all. And Ian Dark, welcome back to the Sports Media Podcast. Uh, I almost was going to say there, what are we doing when <laughs> when you introduce Taylor to the conversation? But uh, 
I, I guess I guess he likes the banter by now. <laughs> He does, yeah. We like, and 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 I think Taylor and everybody else knows. I, I Taylor's a good dude and uh, and and fun to joke with. All right, so let's talk about the Euros, um, which uh, is pretty. Fa- Before I get into some of like sort of how you're going to do these games, because you're actually going to be calling on site. Um, let me ask you just uh, a, a soccer question to start with, and uh, and who do you think is the the favorite in this? Because obviously, is uh, living in England, and I can only imagine what the tabloids are like, but, you know, England has a legitimate chance. If they're not the favorite, they've got to be one of the favorites to win this thing. They're one of the favorites, with the obviously with the English bookmakers, because the um, fans in England will put money on them to win. But I think there's an honest assessment that this is quite an inexperienced squad that England have, albeit it's led by the World Cup golden boot winner, Harry Kane, and they got to the semi-finals in 2018. Lots and lots of attacking talent, lots of brilliant youngsters. Is the defence quite good enough? I think that's that's the feeling about England. Uh, Favourites, you'd have to say France, wouldn't you? France, World Cup yeah. winners, and they've still got nine of the starting 11 uh, that won the World Cup final. And they've got Karim Benzema, rather controversially, uh, back from his six-year exile to lead the attack. So it's probably even stronger than the team they had in 2018. So they'd be worthy favorites, really. Okay. So the the, the interesting thing about this tournament, and I give ESPN a lot of credit, they're really going all out in terms of... Uh, in terms of coverage, 51 matches across ABC, ESPN, ESPN2. Uh, all the matches are on ESPN Plus if you have that service, plus a second screen experience in terms of uh, different kind of audio feeds that you can play around with. So the the to their credit, they're all in on this. What is different, of course, is that because of the coronavirus, because of travel restrictions, perhaps because of a little bit of cost as well, most of the game announcers are going to be based in in Hartford, West Hartford, but Ian and Stuart Robson will be at London's Wembley Stadium calling games. So, Ian, let me start here. Like, how far in advance do you know your schedule right now? Like, are you, will you do every game at Wembley or can that schedule change, let's say, after the opening round? I think I'm going to do most of the games at Wembley. There is the possibility that John Champion and Taylor Twelman, who are working together on this uh, European Championship, might be able to fly in later on in the tournament and do one of the semi-finals um, at Wembley and maybe some other games in Europe. But we're waiting, really, because because it's an ever-changing situation, of course, with the, with the COVID yep. pandemic. We, we just don't know. So even now, there's something of a state of flux. I mean, this has been a nightmare. Thank goodness I don't have to organise all the logistics of this. But yes, there is there is now a schedule of games to cover. We'll be covering some games at Wembley. Interestingly, we'll also be covering some games off television pictures from a studio in London from some of the other locations. So the day after I do England-Croatia... Uh, England's first game in, in the championship the next day I'm doing Poland against Slovakia from St Petersburg from a studio in London so working off television pictures that's going to be difficult I think for for all of the announcers I mean I'm one of the I'm the lucky one I get to go to some games at least um, for everybody else well I hope the viewers will cut them a little bit of slack if, if it proves difficult but I doubt they will <laughs> It's soccer fans. That's not going to happen. Football fans uh, are tough graders. All right. So let me ask you, let's let, let me, I think people would be interested in this. In terms of you calling the games on site at Wembley, what protocol do you have to go through regarding 
uh, COVID, COVID testing to be in stadium? Do you know? Yes. Um, well, we've already had to fill in a, a form from UEFA, the governing body, uh, passing basically an instruction course online and we get a certificate to say that we have completed this online course they will not accredit you for the championships unless you've you've done that and learned all about the safety procedures that will surround the championships then uh, you won't you won't get your accreditation then on the day of the game you have to fill in another form online to tell them that uh, you haven't had COVID, you haven't been in contact with anybody who's got COVID, you haven't crossed borders, all that kind of thing. And we've been doing this in the in the English Premier League for about a year now. I mean, I've spent more time filling in these forms, I think, than prepping the games. It sometimes feels like that. <laughs> um, there are a lot of forms to fill in and your accreditation won't work unless you do that form on the morning of the game. And then when you get in the stadium, I'm sure it's going to be segregated into different areas so that there's the minimum of mix although um, it's going to be great. At least Wembley will be a quarter full for the games. It'll have 22,500. It holds 90,000. So, you know, that's going to be something that's going to make a, a lot of difference because this championship going on in a ghost town, that would have been horrendous. Do, um, do you have to mask up to enter the stadium? I'm assuming that in stadium, you could probably call games without a mask or anything like that. But what I know, at least in this country, in the United States, um, for the NFL, throughout most of the, I actually think this maybe even uh, less until the Super Bowl, to get into the stadium, Ian, you had to follow very strict protocols. You masked up. You essentially were assigned very, very small groups. Then once you were in the booth, it was a little more relaxed. You could take your mask off, et cetera. But it was pretty hardcore for the broadcasters uh, walking out of the car and getting into the stadium. What what? From what your understanding is, what will it be like for the Euro? Yeah, yeah, I forgot to mention that. Yes, you have to wear a mask everywhere in the stadium, except when you're doing a broadcast. And you have to keep, I think it's, they're saying one and a half meters um, away from everybody. Hmm. And there will be officials trying to make sure that that actually happens. So... We, we hope we're at the tail end of the pandemic. I think the day yeah. after the, the, the game, um, the first England game, the UK government is going to make a decision, a big decision about whether to free all the restrictions. At the moment, it looks like that isn't going to happen. It's going to be maybe delayed for a couple, couple more weeks because we have another variant on the go here. So... You know, it's it's tricky and we're all really kind of treading on eggshells a little bit. In terms of the, the matches that you would call at the uh, studios in London, I think it's an IMG studio in London. Is that just a like a regular broadcast facility the way like, uh, you know, Sky Sports has an office or ABC in New York City has an office? Just a, a normal broadcast studio or something soccer specific? Uh, no, it's just a normal broadcast studio. They do all the Premier League VAR from there. It's, it's okay. at Buckley oh. Park. Um, which you might have heard about from all the VAR rows that go on in the English Premier League. It's out near <laughs> Heathrow right. Airport. Um, it's a drive basically to an industrial estate. And that is where we will be bringing you the coverage of Poland v Slovakia and a couple of the other games uh, from the European Championships. So everybody's having to make do and mend a bit here. But you hope, you hope that what comes out through the television is normal service. You, um, I've talked with you uh, before about this because I'm always fascinated by how broadcasters prep. And you, like many of the really excellent uh, football announcers around the world, you take uh, preparation seriously. You make it a point to figure out how to do pronunciations. I yeah. mean, some of the stories uh, 
soccer broadcasters go to do, go through to get proper pronunciations is pretty fascinating, including like uh, calling an embassy in a foreign country. Um, it's a little trickier during COVID to prep just because you're, you know, you're doing Zoom meetings as opposed to meetings in person. You can't meet with uh, managers and players. So what's the prep for this specific tournament been like for you, Ian? Uh, just about the same as, as usual, really, doing a lot of reading, watching the, the prep games that the teams are playing. Um getting a hold of magazines, talking to statisticians and maybe some contacts if you've got them uh, in the various camps of the, of the teams. And you're right, <laughs> the pronunciation, as always, is, is a big issue. I'm very aware that in America there are enclaves of people, you know, like the, the big German population, I think is a Polish um, community too, isn't there, in, in Chicago and so yep. on. They, they will know if we're getting the names wrong. So we'll do our best. I mean, one of the, I mentioned I'm covering Poland, I think most commentators have called the goalkeeper Wojciech Czesny. See, but now it's not that. It's Czesny, we now realise. Hmm. It's Czesny. So I've been going through the Polish names today, and they're, of course, one of the hardest teams. There's another player whose name looks like Kedziora, but should be pronounced Kenziora. So on, on you go, working your way through, through, through all of this. Uh, it's not easy. It's a bit of a minefield, but you do your best to get, the, get them right because it's kind of insulting, really, for anyone who does know that team or comes from that nation and follows that team. And there are, that, that'll be true, I think, of a lot of the audience in the United States, um, that we, we are somewhere <laughs> near concert pitch on the pronunciations. <laughs> Historically, for the Euros, what's the toughest country to pronounce? I would have maybe guessed Croatia, but I, I, that's just a guess. I don't know. Well, I'm doing no. I don't think they are. I do think I, I think it's it's probably Poland because a lot of the names are not as they would look. So, so hmm. there's a game. There's another player here wearing number seventeen for Poland, um, whose name looks like Placetta. That's or Placetta. That, but it's not. It's Płaszczyzna. Hmm. Yes, and on you go. Um, Lots of them like that. One that reads like Joswiak, but that is Joswiak. Interesting. Yeah. So the the real our real expert in this, I mean, he's the number one expert in the world. Is one of our commentators on the European Championships, Derek Ray, who yeah, people might know from the FIFA game. Um, and Derek is the king of this kind of thing. So I'm not ashamed to say sometimes I'll give him a call as well because he's try, had to try and get them all right on the FIFA game. What would the um, atmosphere be both in country as well as in stadium if England makes the final at Wembley? I think it will be really mad. I think it will be crazy and wild in England. It was during Euro 96. You, you, I couldn't describe just what the fever pitch was around the England team because that was a good England team. I think they probably were the best team in the tournament that year they probably should have won it euro 96 at home and yep. there was there was the the song is that gaza shira that's that yeah, team Shearer's, right mac manaman and anderton that's and right of course gascoigne who was really you know, the center yeah. point of, of the whole thing he scored that great goal against scotland oh it will really take off if england go on a run uh, and the manager of, of the england team gareth southgate has said we it will be a failure for us uh, with our home advantage most of the way if we don't make the semifinals. So no pressure then. <laughs> um, what In terms of uh, – I'll do one more of these and then I want to finish up on the Floyd Mayweather, Logan Paul uh, <laughs> okay. farce because you had some good Twitter commentary on that. So I'll, I'll ask you about that. Between you and Stuart, 
at Wembley versus you and Stewart at this IMG Studios. Uh, do you feel, how do I sort of phrase this? What is the advantage of being in stadium in terms of chemistry with your partner if there is an advantage? Meaning, will you have, obviously it's better for you to be in stadium as the play-by-play person, I get that. Yeah. But is there any advantage to being in stadium in terms of the camaraderie or chemistry you'll have with your, your analyst? Not really, no, because it, a lot of that is on eye contact and, and just general rapport. And, and you're going to try to make it so that there's a bit of conversation and flow and maybe some light and shade. Um, that, that should be the same, really, whether you're commentating in the stadium or off tube, as we call it, in, in the business. What, what, what the advantage really is in the stadium is you're feeling the atmosphere closer to you and you can look at, at things that you can't look at when you're working off the television pictures. So if I want to see who's taking a free kick or who's making a move, I can look for myself to cover something. When I'm working off the television pictures, obviously I only have what the director gives me. And sometimes he's not giving you what you really want to be looking at. Doesn't doesn't always happen that way. So it is a big advantage to be there. Uh, okay, one thing before I get to actually, I, I I should have asked you this before. One thing I got before we get to Floyd and Logan Paul, you um you saw the U.S. result over Mexico, yeah. and I think you noted. I was following you on social media. You noted that you thought this could be, this result could be a pivotal moment in the development of this team. I kind of agree with you. What uh, you've called this, you've called that national team. Ian, for many, many years. Um, what was your what were your impressions of, of that win? I think it's a fantastic win for them because this team, as you well know, Richard, have really been in the doldrums ever since the failure to go to the last World Cup. But everything runs in cycles, I think, in sport. And a new team has emerged. There are players coming through all the time. Now there's, there's a good nucleus. And to get a win like that over the oldest enemy, Mexico, in the manner that it happened, in a dramatic manner, when they had to ride through a storm uh, and get through it and then get the win, the amount of confidence and belief that will give that team and, and kind of the togetherness, I think it will give them a, as a group will be really, really very, very good going forward, of course, into a World Cup qualification campaign. And remember, because of this delay to the European Championships, the next World Cup is only 17 months away now. So it's all going to happen pretty fast. Even in Europe, there are people now talking about how good the USA team just could be. Um, And they have the capacity, I think, to do do pretty well. I'm not saying they're going to win the World Cup or anything like that, but I think... These are much brighter times, and I hope the fans are going to get behind the team and realize that. Our last one here. I think all of us who work in sports media understand why the Logan Paul Floyd Mayweather uh, exhibition exists. And it exists because there's a market for it. Like, that's just the reality. Uh, these are two very, very famous people in two different disciplines. Obviously, Floyd was a. Uh, one of the great boxers for his weight class of all time. And Logan Paul is a YouTube star who appeals to uh, a ton of uh, 20-somethings in particular. So there's money to be made in this. And I'm not one who knocks people who decide to uh, spend their money on this. I would never in a million years pay a dime for this nonsense. But but if you do it, that's that's okay. What's interesting to me, Ian, from your perspective is you have called legitimate boxing matches so you are a voice of that sport and i wonder how 
the people who love boxing and who have made their life in boxing see something like this when uh, Floyd Mayweather, obviously a legitimate fighter, decides to essentially pull a money grab by making a fight with a, you know, with a, with a, with a, with a, with a YouTube personality. Yeah, I think Floyd Mayweather is just keeping himself entertained and he probably, it's good for him because he can relive his past in a way and be in the spotlight and have people talking about him again. I remember interviewing Sugar Ray Leonard once and said, well, why do you want to keep doing this? Is it the ego, the glamour and the money? He said, yes, all three. <laughs> Which was a lovely, honest answer. But that, I yeah, think, honest. that's what it's yeah. about for Floyd Mayweather. But honestly, this isn't like seniors golf. This is boxing. So a guy like Logan Paul, a YouTuber, I know he he appeals to Generation X and 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 the young guys. I get, I get Generation that. Z. I get world, <laughs> yeah, whatever it's called now. <laughs> this is generational. I know that a little bit. I can I can see why they're into it, but it is quite dangerous and it's farcical. Floyd Mayweather is one of the greatest fighters that ever lived as a technician. So the idea that somebody like your local grocer you know, can go out and, and, and be in something meaningful in the ring with him is quite ludicrous. So I think it's a sham. I think it's a farce. I think it's really cynical. And I'd like to see it stop, really. There are better ways and better things to put on with these YouTubers than putting them in the ring with people like Floyd Mayweather. But that's me, really, as a comparative old man speaking. And I'm sure I can hear now a lot of youngsters in their in their 20s and maybe even 30s saying, oh, you're a dumb. Get, a, get off my yeah, cloud. Yeah, get exactly, off my lawn. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, the, uh, the, the interesting thing, and this will be the, what we'll sort of finish up on is, and I don't, I'm, I'm not going to be an alarmist because I don't necessarily think this would happen, but is there a fear at all of boxers of renowned, like who see the money that Floyd made and decide like, yeah, like I'll deal with like losing a little bit of my credibility or legacy to fight some actor type for like $20 million because I can't get that kind of money fighting a legitimate fight. Like, I, I, do you, is there any prospect to that or is this kind of a weird one-off because there's not really other Floyd Mayweathers out there? No, I think it's, it's um, a lot of people will say, I mean, Sugar Ray Robinson used to say, it doesn't pay the mortgage, my reputation. So yeah, any, great, way, great line. any way that they can make some money, they're going to do it. Muhammad Ali would have probably done it um, as well. Joe Lewis would have probably done it if such things existed in, the, in their era. They're just taking advantage of the marketplace, as you correctly said, Richard, to be honest with you. But I'll repeat the point. Like, boxing's dangerous. And you can, all right, you can maybe soften the blows and ease your way through it so that they, they don't get hurt. But it, it sometimes doesn't work like that. Sometimes there's a hair trigger reaction. Um, I'll tell you a story about a, a, write, a writer called Mike Marley who decided he'd go in and have a little bit of a, a sort of showbiz knockabout with Thomas the Hitman Hearns many years hmm. ago. Well, I saw him later that day and he said, I made the mistake of trying to go for him. And he said, he just hit me with one left jab. And I said, how do you feel? He said, bad. And he, <laughs> and he still felt bad about a week later. So, I mean, it's a dangerous business. So this isn't like just going to have a game of golf or tennis with a great star. That That's all fine. That's just a bit of fun. But boxing, people do die in the ring. Yeah, that's well said. Ian Dark is uh, one of the most recognizable voices in global football. He has been ESPN's 
uh, lead soccer announcer for now more than a decade, uh, calling big tournaments and United States national team games. You will see him calling the Euros uh, this month. Uh, ESPN, their company, has 51 matches on. And Ian and Stuart Robson will be calling games at London's Wembley Stadium as well as uh, some matches from the IMG Studios in London. But they will essentially be on site, which is cool. At least we get one broadcast team, maybe two, if John Champion and Taylor Twelman uh, head over the pond and call in stadium. But uh, but I'm glad to see at least ESPN has one team, and it's great to it's great to see that it, uh, Ian's part of that. Ian, it's always great to catch up with you. Uh, I have tremendous respect for your work, as you know. And uh, travel safe, and uh, thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Great to talk to you as always, Richard. Take care of yourself. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, as I said at the top, Anthony Krupe will be part of this podcast, uh, I've said many times, uh, in my opinion, the foremost reporter out there in terms of analyzing sports viewership. has been doing this for a long time now at Sportico and previously at Ad Age, and happy to be joined by Anthony Krupe. Krupe, thank you for taking some time today. Uh, thanks for having me, Richard. All right, so let's start with it. We're going to do two things today. We're going to do the NBA, and we're going to do the NHL. Okay. I could get you into Belmont, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a break on that. <laughs> so the first round of the 2021 NBA playoffs is interesting for a number of reasons. One, and I know you'll agree with me on this, it's the first time the NBA has a pretty good viewership story. So mm-hmm. there's a reason they're pushing this uh, as hard as they can. I am sure they contacted as all the reporters that they could for this. The first round of the playoffs across ABC, ESPN, and, and Turner, so in this case TNT, averaged 3.06 million viewers up 46% from the bubble, up 3% from 2019. They were most viewed in the key demos during primetime. And they had, uh, when I checked, I believe I'm right about this, the Clippers-Mavericks game seven was the highest or the most viewed game of the first round. And that was around 5.6 million or something like that. So that gives view, uh, listeners here the background of this. So let me start with you, Krupe. Um If you're in the NBA and you've gotten pounded left and right with not great ratings. You're obviously part of a culture war when it comes to viewership. You haven't really had much great news on the viewership end for a long time. You got to be ecstatic. One, you're up over 2019, which is sort of the real apples to apples. And you're up nearly 50% over the bubble. So a lot of that bubble storying now gets blown away. How do you you sort of view this writ large? Uh, I I think one of the things is, and you know, when you're the league, you don't want to drown people in metrics. But uh, uh, one, one of the things I look at is the 3% growth is particularly impressive given the fact that TV usership, viewership uh, uh, is down uh, between now and that time in, in 2019, it's down almost 20%. So to get a 3% gain when 20% of the audience, a fifth of the audience has disappeared, is pretty impressive. Um, now, I will, I will say, obviously, uh, 
uh, you had two teams from the biggest market in New York, the Knicks and, and, and the Nets. Uh, you had two teams from the number two market. Uh, and then really there weren't a lot of small besides, you know, Memphis, Utah, uh, Philly's number four, DC's a top 10, Boston's hanging on to top 10 for dear life. So the uh, Miami, so these are big markets. So they did exactly what you'd hope they would do, you know, given 43 games, they didn't have, you know, the, but the one sweep, they had one series that went the full seven. And that's how you got your big number at ABC with game seven of the Clippers maps. So I would say all those things should make me feel very uh, comfortable heading into the second round, which is where obviously the story changes because the, there is a potential for a big fall off, not just because, you know, uh, we'll get to it in more detail, but uh, the Lakers yeah. out is, is a problem. So let's pause there for a second. Cause we'll yeah. go right it. We'll go right into that. So Great news for them. First round, celebrate it. Um, had some really good games and some really interesting storylines. Mavericks, Clippers really helped them out a lot by going to seven. But you're right. The second round now poses, I think, immense challenges for them. The Lakers are gone. LeBron is gone. The you know, along with the Golden State Warriors, um, you know, the two sort of standard bearers for viewership of this league for the last uh, you know six seven years. Uh, the Knicks are gone, which hurts. Even if uh, the Knicks would have lasted for four games, it's still the New York market. Yeah. And so now, you know, you have Utah, very good team, but not a great viewership team. You got Denver, very good team again, but I'm not sure a national team. You have the Clippers, which, did, you know, is from Los Angeles, but, you know, I think they still got to prove to me that they're a, a national viewership team. And on the other side, you know, Nets and Philly obviously are are very good. So when I look at the second round, I I don't have the 2019 numbers in front of me, but if I had to guess, I'd guess they would be down. They'll be up obviously over 2020, but that's a challenge. I feel like this round presents, in my opinion, maybe the biggest challenge of the entire playoffs. How do you 20, feel? Uh, 2019 for the uh, conference semis was I think it was about 4.9 million so it's a big it's a big step up yeah that's um, very big but of course back then they had oh gee they, it, there were 25 games for four series uh, so you had a really going deep you had Golden State and Houston and your Raptors uh, Denver Portland Boston the bucks that was it that was that was some great basketball Uh Brooklyn, uh, the, the, the merry band of mercenaries in my neighborhood, uh, looks like they're doing everything they can to, uh, to uh, make this a short series with Milwaukee. Uh, that's not going to help. You, you want to go deep. Yeah. You uh, want that seven if you really, you know, because yeah. Milwaukee is not a big market. But if you could get seven with the stars on the nets and Giannis, that's, that's a casual fan tuning game. Yeah. I, I don't understand either why. Milwaukee isn't a bigger national draw. I get it's a smaller market, but you know, Cleveland is a small market and, and, and LeBron, obviously I'm not comparing LeBron to Giannis, but I don't understand how that guy is not 
the next big thing. He's he's got a huge personality. He's a lot of fun. He's tremendously fun to watch. And yet I just don't feel like that, that there's a lot of hype behind. Well, frankly, kind of any other team in the league that isn't LeBron or, or, you know, one of the New York teams, it's, and I don't, I don't think that's a system wide failure. I just think it's a, maybe it's a, the, the networks have to recast the narrative. Uh, maybe fans have to start looking at basketball a different way. Uh, but there's an incredible, like, you know, you said Utah, that is a fun team to watch. Uh, Phoenix, you know, Phoenix is extraordinarily fun to watch. These teams are, you know, you would hope that they were use these national games as a way to sort of up their profile and, and you know, more people come on, on board as we get closer to the end. But, um, you know, that's been a problem for, uh, as long as as uh, the Lakers have sort of owned the entire landscape, but for the Jordan Bulls era and and that four year window we got where it was LeBron and and uh, going up against the Dubs, it, it's pretty much been a Lakers league. And I I mentioned that thing that Stern had said to Dan Patrick in 2004. It was when Patrick was still with ESPN. I can't, can you imagine anybody saying something like that nowadays? First of all, there wasn't a Twitter back then because he would have been crucified. Um, but Stern was Stern. He said whatever he wanted to. Uh, I, I, the, the Lakers versus Lakers is being the best possible outcome for the NBA finals this year. Uh, the man wasn't lying. That was the, the Kobe Shaq era. And in a sense, it was kind of a, a bit of a wink because it was Lakers versus Lakers. It was Kobe versus Shaq as much as Kobe and Shaq. So uh, yeah, you just, you'd never hear uh, uh, Silver say that uh, or any other commissioner. Nowadays. Not Yeah, not today. Um, no. Before we get to the NHL, the thing that I think that's, I mean, maybe it's a little bit of a hometown bias for me because I used to live there, but the Brooklyn Nets are the most interesting viewership team to me right now. Because with the absence of Golden State and with the absence, obviously, of the Lakers and LeBron, they're the team that has far and away the most national stars on the team. And both of us know that, you know, when it comes to the finals in particular, like ultimately famous people sell. Famous teams to some extent, but, you know, you need Jordan or LeBron or, um, you know, Steph Curry, et cetera. But Brooklyn has never been an it team. You know what I mean, Krupe? Like yeah. it, it just it just hasn't, but it plays in a big market. And so I'm so curious to see if we get a finals, let's say, of uh, you know, of Brooklyn Clippers, which I'm sure the league would probably most love, or, yeah. or let's say Brooklyn Jazz, if if somehow the Jazz get through. Like I'm really curious to see what kind of tune in Durant, Harden, and Kyrie can can bring. Because I honestly don't know. Like I don't expect it to be Steph. And I don't expect it to be LeBron. At the same time, I don't think these guys are like the Pistons of old or the Tim Duncan Spurs. I think they're more popular. So do you have a feel as to what kind of finals might we, we might be looking at, like metrics-wise, if, if the Nets make it? And I am sure the league office is rooting for the Nets to make it. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, again, number one market, biggest market. They've got 8 million TV homes just here, and that goes up to almost 10 when you just look at internet only access. Uh, 
I mean, here in Brooklyn, people can't get enough of the, the Nets, but I, I don't uh, I don't know what people outside of Brooklyn think, because to me, as as sort of a disinterested outside party, they sort of feel like the reservoir dogs, like like these guys came together to do a do a heist. You know, they've only played eight games together during the regular season. Uh, Harden's out, and yet they still managed to win by 39 points, which is just not not good news if you're hoping for a long series there. Although, you know, it goes back to Milwaukee, so uh, who knows? They'll have a couple days rest. But, uh, yeah, I think I think maybe there's even um, something to be said about the curiosity factor. Maybe because this team hasn't played together as much and so people haven't really gotten a chance to see them at their full strength. If when, if when Harden comes back online, if they keep putting up numbers the way they do short a guy, maybe more people start tuning in. We got to, we got to check this team out. Like what's the story? We haven't seen them all play together. Harden comes back in the lineup. You know, what do they do next? Uh, because I think they also have a, a they could they could kind of lean into the black hat thing. I think uh, I think Durant was like in a another uh, spat with uh, another member of the media. Yeah, Jay Williams. That's good. I mean, like, listen, it's not, is it good for like society? No. no. <laughs> is it good for the league viewership wise? Yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah. That Kevin Durant saying Jay Williams lied about something he said on uh, ESPN's Get Up, like, will does provide you a little bit of drama. And probably can get you some people who might be curiosity seekers for the Nets. Whether that's the case like this week because they're up 2-0. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what the league really needs, I think, is they need that Bucks series to go 7. And then they're going to need like one of these West Coast series to go 7. Because I think the West Coast is a big challenge. To me, that's a much bigger ch- viewership challenge for them in this round. Is the, Are those two Western Conference semifinals versus versus the Eastern ones. And like you said, the, the best case scenario now is is Brooklyn Clippers. I, I think uh, just in terms of the market size, that's that's a layup. Uh, I don't I don't know if that makes for the best basketball, but like everything, and, and I mentioned it in the, in the story that went up yesterday. You know, if you don't have the 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 mighty uh, sort of uh, outside the zeitgeist power of, of the NFL, where it doesn't matter really what markets being uh, represented in the Super Bowl or even like in the NFC or AFC championship games, every sport uh, relies on going deep game six, game seven and, uh, and markets. Uh, And that's not necessarily the most compelling story uh, from, from the actual sport uh, from, from that angle. But, uh, because I feel like sometimes when we talk about the deliveries, we're overlooking how much great basketball is being played. And parenthetically, uh, I know for sure the Atlanta Hawks are going to be the, probably the hardest ticket to get in yeah. the garden next year. Good story. It's a good, good. That's the, the Hawks getting good is a good story for the league. Yep. Yeah. That, that's a good market. Like that's, that's a, that's a plus story for them. All right. Before you get out of here, I want to talk about the, the NHL. Um, Per Austin Karp of Sports Business Daily, first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs averaged a uh, total audience of 642,000 viewers across NBC, NBCSN, USA, CNBC, digital outlets. That was up 6% from 
from the first round in 2020. Keep in mind that the first round of of the 2020 playoffs started in August because of the pandemic. But that was the least watched first round since 2013. You know, I'm I'm a hockey mark. I live in Toronto. It's it's obviously when you have the Maple Leafs here, it's hard to escape it. So I find the sport very compelling. It's fun to watch, but that's, I don't know what to think of that number. Um, I would have, honestly, I think I would have expected the NHL to do a little bit better in the first round, just, um, you know, given the, the, we're back at sort of a normal calendar for them. Uh, But I know you have some thoughts on this and, you know, the reality is like the way the divisions are set up, NBC gets nothing out of the Canadian markets, right? So that's essentially three rounds of playoff hockey. They're going to get nothing from, and maybe that makes a difference because if you get like, I don't know, some, a Chicago or a Philadelphia for an extra round or something like that, I guess there's your difference in, in how much you're up. But I don't know. I guess I was a little surprised at that number. Uh, I have to admit, especially because the viewership here in Canada has been through the roof. Yeah, I I did think it was interesting um, that all four of the Canadian teams wound up landing in the same bracket, which pretty much guaranteed that uh, while it might erode the ratings for that particular chunk of play, uh, it's, it's not diffuse. So you're not having Canadian teams in, say, three of the four yeah, good uh, point. Right. You know, so best case scenario there is, is Montreal makes it out uh, an original six. Yep. Which they did. Event. Yep. Yeah. In the Stanley cup, even though you have the same problem we had a couple of years ago when the Raptors <laughs> made the NFL NBA finals, That's right. where you yeah. don't have a local market. Uh, you know, if you're a hockey fan and, and you're not excited about the opportunity, maybe to see the Bruins and uh, the Canadians, uh, suit up and you're I don't know you maybe you should be watching something else I don't think in a weird way though I, I would almost say and this is anathema to me as a, as a guy who looks at the media through the lens of advertising in a way you could make the case that the NHL really doesn't have to worry about ratings for a very long time now great point uh, yeah they just signed the, their contract what are yeah. they yeah their money's coming in regardless and I I don't think the people who are buying time on NBC and the seven other networks you just named, you know, they're, sh- they're not going to shoot the moon here. They're, they're not getting guarantees that are outside of the realm of, of what they've seen over the last several years. I, it's just, um, you get this very hardcore, very engaged uh, sport where it delivers a very specific demo. It, it over indexes on categories like uh, beer yeah. And I, I'm not making a joke, but that is no, no, for sure. I mean, not surprising. That's 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 hockey. I'm sure the 18. To, I'm sure the 18 to 30 year old male demo. I'm sure they if they. I know they do 18 to 24. But if mm-hmm. you broke, if you really, really broke it down, let's say 18 to 35 males. I'm sure hockey does great, right? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think one of the things that's always uh, puzzled me about the NHL in particular is that it seems like it's the one league where fans who see their team exit early tend to cycle Stick out around. Yeah. of the rest of the, the, the post. Is that gambling or is that just because the sport is, it's just the biggest sport in the country and that's just, you can't compare anything else to it. It's, it's its own I, sort of, I, I, I almost, I almost think maybe they're just exhausted too. When you get to the end of it, I, that's the thing people are missing. If they don't watch, it's a also lot. one game. It's a one, it's a one it's, game commitment versus it, a series, right? And it's, it's 
uh, hockey is like, uh, I don't know how many overtime games they've had already. A lot. It is the most nerve wracking <laughs> in a fun way. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's the postseason you possibly have. You see, you know, you just mentioned yeah, there have been some pretty good N- NBA games. These NHL games are nuts. Every single one of them, you got you got a budget in knowing yeah. that uh, you're probably not going to bed anytime. It's midnight. the best. Um, it's the best overtime. Sport, it's so in my good. Opinion. Before I get you out of here, let me ask you this. This is just my own sort of curiosity. If there's anybody from Denver listening, they'll be interested in this. But like yeah. that market is interesting to me because the Avalanche are a really good team. Really yeah. good, young, interesting team. The, the, we're taping this. It's the series is two two. Certainly, the Golden Knights could beat them. It's it's that 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 series could go either way. But if the Avalanche are in the Stanley Cup final, like wh- historically, from outside of the Broncos, which obviously is a great market for football, like what can you tell me about the Denver market, like as a in terms of viewership and and other things? Like, can does it have any kind of national relevance? Like when if the Nuggets go far. Or uh, um, the Rockies go far, or is it you know really the terms of national teams in that market? The Broncos have, only, have been the only. I mean, one. It, it's very much. Uh, it's not a small market by any. You know, it's number sixteen, so it's like right behind Detroit. Sixteen. Um, okay. I think I think one of the other than the Broncos, and again, now we're talking about you know, apples and Fiona apple, because you can't sell <laughs> anything. But other than the Broncos, like, I, I think the problem with the Colorado based clubs is they always feel like uh, uh, they're expansion teams a hundred years after they've been around. I, I don't know why. I think maybe because it's so specific to the iconography of the area. You know, I look out the window, I don't see mountains. So that's, uh, uh, I, I think, um, I don't think we've ever seen, we don't, we haven't seen enough of Denver in a championship situation outside yeah. of the Rockies that one year. And it's a good point. And who did, who did they play again? Did they play the, uh, who they play the Yankees? Yeah, I think that, I think that might be the case. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, it's, so I don't have a lot of data for them. I, I think, uh, look, the NBA, the the NHL, they had a series. How many years ago was was L.A. New York? And because this flies in, in in the face of everything we've been saying this whole time, you got the number one market versus number two, and it wasn't you know it wasn't the Islanders, which are the number two and the number one. It was it was it was the Rangers. Yeah. Uh, and this, you know, for the NHL, it, the numbers weren't bad. But I don't think I don't think it did any any more than maybe five and a half million average. And again, game two and three always get pulled down because they put it on the soon to be, you know, disappearing NBC Fortinet. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yep. But they had to because they, they, they had obligations with the cable operators and stuff. Uh, but, you know, you'd lose like 65 percent of the audience off the bat. Um, I. I think a, a game seven between the Bruins and the uh, and the Canadians would probably be would well. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it would get close to nine. I agree. But that's I, the ceiling, really. You yeah. know, it is it is very much, uh, you know, it's a it's a niche. It's a, regi- it's a regional sport at the end yeah. of the day. A, a, a good, a very good one. 
but a regional sport, at least viewership-wise. I would like to bring up one thing, because uh, it's interesting. There's been a lot of back and forth about how the addition of the out-of-home ratings to the national sample have changed, have made it more difficult to do uh, year-to-year comparisons, because yep. uh, now that they're baked in, it's sort of, quote-unquote, artificially inflates it. Once we get another year out, that's not going to be an issue anymore. But I'm starting to think, uh, if I'm NBC, I don't know what their guarantees are yet. I have to look into that. But I can't imagine they're going to be as high as they were in 2016 because I'm starting to wonder what TV usage nationally is going to be like a month from now uh, or 50 days from now when everybody's back out because even without a home, I don't necessarily think people are going to be screen bound. I think people are going to be out doing things they haven't done in 16 months. And uh, I don't know if that's going to do anybody any favors on the viewership side, but we'll see. One thing I do know is that uh, they made a quietly made an announcement maybe about a week ago that they were going to use Tunity data for out of home and that almost was like saying they're they're going to inflate their ratings uh, before the press sees them, because Tunity, uh, they're the way they capture the out of home data. They don't even use a Q-tone, which means the the person in the bar, or restaurant, or gym, or wherever non you know domestic situation they're in doesn't have to even hear the ad. Now, for years, the advertisers were fighting. The generic out of home where you, you have to hear the ad or it doesn't count. Uh, so it, it's a range thing. Um, there's no way anyone's paying for ratings that are done in a place where their ad can't be heard. That's just, and it's going to, it'll double, you know, and it's still, it's going to be a relatively small amount, but you're going to see them go from, say, millions, one, seven, five to like a three, five all of a sudden without a home because the, the Tunity data just call, counts everybody in the room. Uh, I'm trying to talk about this without getting too far into the weeds, but basically it's a, it's a pretty convenient way to make your numbers look a little better. And the fact that they, they're kind of hedging their bets in that direction suggests that you know, they're aware that there's going to be challenges. Now, we'll have you back, certainly, for uh, when the Olympics come around. Anthony Krupe is a media writer for Sportico. You obviously read him when he was at Ad Age, one of the best in the country when it comes to evaluating sports viewership numbers and metrics. Anthony Krupe, thanks, as always, for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast, and, uh, and we'll have you back in a couple of weeks for sure. Thank you. Right. Thanks for having me. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Ian Dark and Anthony Krupe for their time and insights. Uh, if you like this, uh, these kind of conversations, please head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page. Leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That's how this podcast continues. Last couple of uh, podcasts, Jamel Hill on uh, Naomi Osaka and uh, press conferences and the value of them. Tom Hannafin, you probably know him better as Tom Phillips. He uh, exited the WWE not too long ago, and so we talked about that exit. Before that, Kavitha Davidson and Jimmy Trainer for some media talk. Uh, and then before that, we did something on the uh, the end of Kenny Mayne's era at ESPN with James Andrew 
Miller, uh, Steve Kornacki on uh, sort of morphing between news and sports. And if you just basically go there, you, uh, you should find something, I think, that will be of interest to you. My thanks to uh, Sean Cherry for producing this podcast this week. Much appreciated uh, uh, by him. And thanks to everybody at Cadence 13. And thank you, of course, for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.